continuing. If you have a Bible, you can be in Acts chapter uh, 6. We're going to start today. Uh, we're continuing with uh, a series we started last week, looking through these middle sections of, Act, of, of the book of Acts, where we see the church moving uh, from Jerusalem, where it is, where it's a mainly Jewish church, where the church is going to be expanding outward, and it's going to be going into the city called Antioch. And by the time it gets to Antioch, it's a it's a multi-ethnic church. They, they can't call them, it's not just a Jewish movement anymore. It's a, oh yeah, we're leaving those back doors open, Gene, for the, uh, for the bird to hopefully find his way out. And other birds hopefully will not find their way in. So, uh, so by, the end, by the time we get to the end of these chapters, at the end of chapter 11, it's, the disciples are just called Christians. Because now they're a multi-ethnic group of people, and we don't know what to call them otherwise, and they're not just Jewish anymore. And so they're called Christians when they get to the end of Antioch. And as the church expands geographically into this area, and as the church expands ethnically and is seeking to reach new people with the gospel of Christ, there's a question that arises that sometimes this question arises and it has arisen uh, on, it, it arises every couple decades. It arises maybe every generation in the church. And the question, and it's a question that arises even today as, as church leaders, as church people start thinking about, about our generation and how do we reach our generation with the gospel. A question that comes up again and again is this. Uh, if, we are, if we're looking at bringing the gospel to a new people, if we're looking at bringing a gospel into a new mission field, how much and do we adapt or change the message of the gospel to reach new people? So if we have a new mission, does that mean we have a new message? And you might hear people saying that if we want to reach people today, modern people with modern sensibilities, that we need to change the, the message of Christianity. They were saying this 100 years ago. There was a guy by the name of Schleiermacher, another guy, uh, they're called the German school, that they thought in order to reach modern people with modern scientific worldviews, we have to change, we have to understand that the text of scripture, that the story of Jesus, we have, to, we have to demythologize it, is what they said. So we have to take out all the fanciful or unscientific or, myth, or mythological elements to it, which of course they were the ones who decided what was fanciful and mythological. And they said if we just strip the Bible of these things, then, then we'll be able to reach our people better, our, our, our modern scientific people. The theological liberalism is what that movement was called. It battled fundamentalists in the early 1900s. And while they won some of the seminaries like Harvard and Princeton, they lost some of the pews. 20 years ago, there's a guy named John Shelby Spong. He wrote a book called Why Christianity Must Change or Die. It was a, a book that was heralded as, as very, being, very theologically progressive, but it really was just bringing through the same arguments that were given 100 years before. Uh, a couple years ago, you had Brian McLaren, a new kind of Christianity. And, and, and so what you see is about once a decade, a book or a teacher will arise who will say, in order to reach modern people, younger people, people who think different way, we have to actually not just change our methods in reaching them, but actually change our message in order to reach younger people. So we take out some of the focus on, of the Bible on individual sin or a sexual ethic or heaven or hell, we kind of set that stuff aside, and so we need to rebrand Christianity and kind of repaint it in the image of modernity and the modern ethic. And amazingly, 
Here's the thing. At, at the heart of people who are making the arguments, there, there, is, there is, at least on the surface, they will say, a desire to see the message of Christianity reach the people around us. But in order to do that, they would say, we have to change the message of Christianity. Each of these movements have one thing in common. They, they, they spring up for a bit, and then they, they generally meet, they have one thing in common. And I'm going to tell you what they have in common at the end of my message today. But first, I want to introduce you to Stephen. Uh, actually, we met Stephen last week. He's in Acts chapter 6. If you, if you read in Acts chapter 6, he's, he's one of the guys that we introduced you to last week. Remember in Acts chapter 6, there's a disagreement that arises between the, the, the Hebrew Jews, the Hebrew Hebrew Jews, and the Hellenistic Jews in Jerusalem, and they have a, dis, they have a, um, a dispute arising because the, the Hellenists are feeling that their widows are being overlooked and, and as, as the church was taking care of some of the daily needs. And a dispute arose, and so the apostles said, we'll set aside seven men who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and, and we'll set them over this ministry because we have to keep the main things, the main things. We have to keep the word of God and prayer central. And so they, they, seven men were put forward, and Stephen was one of these seven men who was put forward as, uh, to help in this ministry. But we see right away at the, in, in, in Acts chapter, or the next chapter, the next verse, we see that Stephen's ministry wasn't confined to just distributing food among the widows. We see Stephen is actually a powerful preacher. And, and we see that actually God is using him in a powerful way. And as Stephen is going out and conducting his ministry, there's a charge that is laid against Stephen. And it's an important charge. The charge from the Jewish people and actually the other Hellenists are saying, Stephen, you've invented a religion. They're saying, Stephen, you are destroying the religion that you claim to represent. And they're charging Stephen that Stephen has changed and transformed and set aside and adapted and, and has changed the message in order to reach people. And the wisdom of Stephen and the wisdom of the apostles and the wisdom and what we're going to get to the end of this chapter is that you do not, we do not change the core message of Christianity in order to reach people. But we're going to see what happens with Stephen as we're introduced through this text. And so I want to read in Acts chapter 6, verse 8, introduce you to this guy named Stephen. So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, the Alexandrians, those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. And then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him, and they seized him, and they brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses, false witnesses, who said, listen to the charge against him. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place 
and will change, there's the word, right? Will destroy and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And so notice the charge against Stephen by some of his fellow compatriots, his fellow Hellenistic Jews. The charge is that in order for you Christians, you people, to go out and preach this message about Jesus, you are not faithful to the message that Moses gave us. You have changed it. You have adapted it. And they even use the words, you are blaspheming against Moses and you are destroying the customs that God had given to us through him. And that's the charge that they are giving Stephen, that, that he will change the customs that Moses has delivered to him. And so that's the question we're going to do. We're going to read, actually I'm going to read basically through all of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. We're doing a lot of scripture, covering a lot of ground today. Um, but we're going to look at this whole speech, Stephen's speech, and we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Stephen's defense, his response to this charge that he is destroying Judaism. We're going to look at how Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, how he, how he points out what Stephen's speech, he, he provides for us Stephen's speech, and then how he uses Stephen's speech in telling the story of the early church. And then we're going to look at what it means to us. Okay, so we're going to look at three, three things, kind of three spheres of how we're going to look at this passage today. First, we're going to look at Stephen's defense. And here's what I'm going to do. There's a lot of texts here. So I'm going to preach, I'm going to read Stephen's defense, but it's not going to be, I'm not going to put all the words up on the screen. What I'm going to do on the screen is I'm going to highlight a couple things. One will be highlighted in red, and one will be highlighted in blue. And so as you're hearing me read Stephen's speech, I want you to also be watching and looking and trying to think of what are the two key points that Stephen is trying to present to us through this speech. Okay? So this is Stephen's defense that we're going to be looking at today. Acts chapter 7, verse 1. We can fly right in there. There we go. So, So the high priest said to him, Are these things so? And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham way when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And God said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. And he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died... God removed him from there into this land, Canaan, this land in which you now are are living. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but he promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, even though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they will come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. 
And, and God rescued him out of all his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent out and summoned Jacob his father and his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, and all our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, and laid in the tomb that Abraham brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar in Shechem. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt, until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with their race and forced their fathers to expose their infants that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Listen, this is a really important verse. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile to them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? For the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So wait, now he's in Midian, right? Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near to look, and there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to them, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among the brothers. This is the one who in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, and they offered a sacrifice to the idol, and were, rejecting, and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned them away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the prophets, Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch, a false god, and the star of your god Rephan, the images you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. 
just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern he'd seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the land that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? What's the place of my rest? Didn't my hand make all these things? Here's where it gets real. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you've now betrayed and murdered. And you who received the law as delivered by angels, you did not keep it. And we'll read it a little bit later. They took him outside and they stoned him. That was a lot to read. What is Stephen's argument here and why does Luke write it all down for us and it took me like 10 minutes to read it? What's the point of this passage and what is it saying to us? I, uh, I struggled with this like the first lot, lot of times I taught the book of Acts. This, this, this always stuck out to me. I always got lost. I was like, why is he just telling us the story of the Old Testament over and over and over again? Like, what's, what's going on here? And if you look, Stephen's argument basically has one main point with two parts to it. Stephen's argument basically, his defense is basically this. The law itself testifies that God moves among the nations and condemns those who would oppose Jesus. If you Actually, go back one slide, Trevor, if you can. I don't know if you just press back. Notice this. This is, the, this is what they're saying. They're in Jerusalem right now. And they're saying to Stephen, you're always speaking against this place and you're always speaking against the temple. And what Stephen is doing is in this whole speech, he's showing them that God had been moving all through the law, all through the instruction that Moses gave down, all through the Old Testament that the Jewish people hold all dear, Stephen is emphasizing God has always been working among the nations. God has always been moving the people of God through the nations. And so his point is that God has never confined himself to a certain place. That God has not dwelt in houses made of hands. Through that whole time, God was fine to move along with the people of God. And in fact, when they went from Mount Sinai into Jerusalem, God was living and dwelling in a tent. And God was fine with living and dwelling in a tent. And a tent you can pack up and you can move. And a tent you can tear down and you can move. And God was fine that whole time moving among the nations with his people living in a tent. And in fact, you don't get into all the way down to the end of his argument where he says Solomon, Solomon was the first one who said, I will build, in verse 47, Stephen concedes that Solomon built a house for God, but immediately says, Yeah, Solomon built a house for God, yet God doesn't live in houses built with hands. Heaven is his throne. The earth is his footstool. How can you contain God to a place? And so Stephen's argument is that it's not the Christians who are blaspheming Moses by speaking against the temple and by moving out of Jerusalem. It's actually what Stephen's argument is. These Jewish people who are keeping the law are actually blaspheming Moses. 
because they want to make an idol of the place and to restrict God to our particular location. So Stephen's argument is, we haven't changed the customs Moses passed down to us. You guys have. I know this is really funny with this bird flying around. I'm trying to ignore it, but... Stephen's second argument. So, so the law itself testifies that God moves among the nations. And second, the law itself... No, no, sorry, go back. I'm just going to go back one. The law itself condemns those who would oppose Jesus. And, and so we note through that whole speech... That whenever God is moving his people through the nations, the people of God themselves oppose that movement. He makes a big point. That's not even in the Old Testament. He makes a point. It's after Haran died, and Haran was considered by the Jewish people as an idol worshiper. And he makes it the point that it's only after Haran, Abraham's father, dies, that God then moves him into the promised land. That there's an opposition there. He makes a huge point to say that the faithful one, Joseph, was was moved and driven into Egypt by his brothers who sold him into slavery. And they detested him and they opposed him. And, and then the, the main part, the main focus of the whole argument is Moses. And how often Moses, who was raised up as a ruler and a redeemer of Israel, how often Moses was rejected by the very people of God that God had sent Moses to. And Stephen's argument is that Christianity is not destroying the law, it's not changing the law, but that Christianity is fulfilling everything the law prophesied would happen when the righteous one was revealed, when the prophet like Moses came, that the law testified that God would be moving among the nations and that his ruler, redeemer, would be raised up and that, and that he, would be, uh, he would be opposed by his own people. He came into his own and, the own, and his own received him not. It's basically this, this speech in Acts chapter 7 is basically the same argument that is made again and again through the book of Hebrews that we looked at all last year. That Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Jesus did not come to set up a, a, a system in opposition to the law. But that Jesus has come to fulfill, to fulfill the law. And so it's, it's not Stephen and it's not Christianity that have changed. It's actually that we are actually pointing out what the law had been saying from the beginning. The law has fulfilled its purpose, and so that those who reject Christ are the ones who have missed the point. And that brings us to Luke's intent. So this was the big question I had. Why do we get such... This is the longest sermon in the book of Acts. All the other sermons in the book of Acts are like nice and, I know, are nice and uh, summarized for us. This is a lot of real estate. So what is Luke doing? Well, look at what the response is to the speech. The response to the speech in verse 54 says, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Stephen said, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they crowd out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of his execution, 
And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. The response to Stephen's speech in the book of Acts is that at the martyrdom of, of Stephen, you, you see uh, one young man here. You see a young man named Saul. And he's giving approval of this murder of Stephen. And he is going to become, in the book of Acts, the very person that God is going to use to push the church out of Jerusalem and to the ends of the world, first through persecuting the church, and then by himself taking the message of the church as the greatest missionary. And you see the response here in in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Stephen's speech, man, this is really hard. Uh, can we stop and pray? Probably should have done that at the beginning. Let's pray that this bird leaves. Okay? Or stops flying around. Because I know it's hard for you to pay attention. It's hard for me to have any idea what I'm talking about, to be honest. And so let's stop here for a second and let's pray. Because bird, you got to go. Oh, Heavenly Father, no, I'm praying for God. Please, Lord, you are the God who is the God of heaven and earth, and you created all that there is in them. And I pray for this bird. Lord, please help this bird get out these doors and, uh, or settle down so that we can focus on on you and and what you have for us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Where'd he go? All right, bird. He really likes those windows. I have no idea where I am now. Saul. All right. Stephen's point. Now let's just roll. Stephen's point. God's always moving outside the nation. God had always told you there will always be people, religious people, who will oppose the work of God in raising up the Redeemer. Stephen's point is you guys have done this. Not He's speaking to the Jewish people that day and saying, you guys have missed the point of the entire law of God. You've missed the point that God is the God of of nations. God is the God of heaven and earth. God is the God who does not confine himself to time and place. And when he sent his son to save you, you opposed him and rejected him, just as the law said that you would do. Luke picks up on this and says, look, this is the theological movement that drives the church out in mission. This is the the circumstantial, this is what happens in history and time and place, the circumstance that drives the church out of Jerusalem, but it's the content of this message that drives the church out of Jerusalem. 
Do you see what's happening here? Steve, and Luke's an amazing author inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's actually saying it's the theological content of Stephen's speech that drives the church out of Jerusalem, and it's also the response to Stephen's speech that drives the church out of Jerusalem. That's why this is such a fundamental, like, it's such an important passage in the book of Acts, is that God's movement is always being opposed, God is always moving, and God is about to move again, and God's movement has always been opposed, and it's about to be opposed again as the church takes the message of the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And so what does this mean for us as we go through this very long and very difficult passage? Four things that I want to kind of close with to think about as we're looking through this. The first thing it means for us is what Stephen has said all along. God is always working outside of our walls. We are going to go through over these next couple of weeks as we continue in the book of Acts, we are going to see how God pushes, the Holy Spirit pushes the church to think outside of their walls. And if we do not recognize and notice that there's a God who is always at work outside of the walls, we will miss this and we will want to pull and, and craft and to build walls for ourselves. Now I sound like Trump, building up the walls. God is not confined, the whole point of this speech is that God is not confined to time nor place. What this means for you and what it means for me is that God is at work in the people around you and he is drawing some of them and will be drawing some of them through the gospel to worship him, to respond when you guys go to work or when you guys go to your school or when you guys go to your neighborhood or when you guys go to your family. That God is not just working here in this place and he never has confined himself to one place. God is working outside of the walls. He mentions Ur. He mentions Abraham in Ur. Stephen points out that, listen, if you read Genesis, God does not appear to Abraham and tell him that he'll be the father of many nations until Genesis chapter 12. When, 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 when Abraham's already in Haran. But Abraham moves to Haran in Genesis chapter 11. And what Stephen points out is that God was at work in calling Abraham while he was in Ur. When Abraham was still a pagan and when Abraham's father was still a pagan, God was working in that family to call Abraham. God began working in my family, for example, God began working in my family before I heard God's effectual call to salvation. God was already putting people in my life. God was already starting to reach me with the gospel before I ever responded, before I ever knew that I ever would respond. And part of the point of this passage is that God is working outside of the walls, and that's why God is pushing us, his people, to go find who God is working and to go proclaim the gospel to them. God is working outside of the wall. The second main point of this passage for us is that we go because God sends us, because God moves us. In almost every verse of Stephen's speech, God is the actor who sends and directs and appears and speaks and removes and rescues and raises up and sends and drives out. God directs our lives according to his purposes and according to his mission. God has directed you. If you're here today in this very distracting service, and I don't know what God's purposes are for this, but God has directed you here today to hear 
the word that God is moving outside of the walls and that God is directing your life for his purposes and for his mission. You may not even be a Christian yet. And God has put you here today. And it could be that you're put here today to hear and to respond to this message, which is that you are a person who is created by God. You are a person who is created by God in his own image. You are a person who has been formed and fashioned according to God's purpose. That you are a person who, yes, like the rest of us, has, at, has, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You might be walking right now in a state of active rebellion against your creator. But you are here today, and so I need to tell you that God has, is not content to leave humankind in our sins, but he has sent up, he has sent us a rescuer, he has sent us a redeemer, Jesus Christ. He has given and provided us a means for our salvation and has promised that any of us who turn to him in faith and repentance will receive forgiveness of sins in his name and we are then part of this movement to the world to go, pronounce, to go proclaim and announce to the nations that Jesus Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. And so I don't know the purpose for why you're here today. If you're not a Christian, the purpose of why you're here today might be that you would right now hear and turn and bow and, and place your faith and your hope in Christ. If you're a Christian here, which many of you are, I want to encourage you today from this passage that it is God who has directed your life. God in this passage directs individuals. God in this passage directs the community of faith, and God in this passage in Stephen's sermon even directs the nations. There is not one of us that falls outside of God's sovereign will and plan for our lives. And I want to encourage you with that, particularly young people who go to a point in your life where you say, I don't know what's happening next. Well, none of these guys knew what was happening next, but they trusted as God led them. And they trusted as God moved his people through Mesopotamia and into Canaan and into Egypt and into Midian and through the wilderness and then into the nation. And when the people said, all right, God, stop moving us. Let's set up a house for you. God said, no, 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 I don't live in houses formed by human hands. The next few chapters of the book of Acts, we're going to see what has been called the spontaneous expansion of the church. What happens as the church goes from Jerusalem to Antioch is that the Holy Spirit leads them in these things and he leads them through persecution and he leads them by directing them and he leads them through miraculous ways and he leads them through normal ways. And what you see in these chapters as we go through the next few chapters of the book of Acts, the spontaneous expansion of the church, you see the Holy Spirit lead and you see the church follow. And so what, what happens in that is the Spirit leads but the people of God then are responsive to the Spirit's leading in their life and to the life of the community. That's faith. That's the walk of faith. Seeing what the Holy Spirit is doing and walking in step with Him. We go because God sends us. We go because God leads us. And we as the church and as individuals are called to be a responsive church. 
and I, and I do want to say a little bit of, of what God may be speaking to us through this passage is, our church is literally going to be moving in two months. And for some of us, it, it, it still may not have sunk in, and I, I really can't leave this without saying it. For some of us, it might, have real, it, it might just mean for some of us that, oh, instead of going to Westboro on Sunday, I will go to this other place on Sunday. And that might be the extent of which your prayer and your thought has been given thus far to the, the reality that our church will be soon to move into a new neighborhood. God does not do things purpose and aimlessly. And, and I do believe that part of the, the, part of the sovereign message of this chapter in the book of Acts and these next few chapters in the book of Acts is that God does uniquely direct his church. And he does this for the sake of mission. It's why over the last couple of years, I've been trying to get my mindset around that this is not just a church move. It's actually a church replant. Because if we're not thinking missional, if we're not thinking in, in mission terms about this move, then we're missing, I believe we're missing the leading of God in this. We as a church have been here in one neighborhood for 17, 18, 19, I don't know, 20 years. It's a big thing that we are going to be moving into a new neighborhood. And so we need to think, because God has always been leading his people to think, how is God going to use us? Because not, it's not that we are just happened to buy a building, it's that God is actually sending us, just as he has sovereignly guided other nations, other communities, and individuals. We need to be preparing ourselves for the mission of God and how God is going to be using us in his purposes. Along with that is, and I preached this passage a number of years ago, and I just called it Tents, Not Temples. And we've been kind of in a tent mindset for seven, eight years. We've been renting and kind of like moving from you know, a little church building to church building. For those of you guys who've been along with us a longer, you've, some of you guys have been in, what, three or four different church buildings with us. And now we're going to be settling in to a new home for possibly decades. And I think I've been warned by other pastors. I've been warned by other pastors that we cannot fall into the same trap that Israel had done here with the temple and made the temple an idol. I've been warned from other pastors that we need to be very careful that we do not make our building an idol, but that we must keep a tent mindset and that if God is allowing us to settle into a neighborhood, that does not mean that we are called to settle down. It actually means that we are to see the building and the neighborhood that God is putting us into as a center of mission and keep that tent mindset and be looking at how God is working outside of the walls. God does not dwell in houses made by hands, and so while we are thankful for the building, we, we have to use it for ministry, for the worship of God, and for the mission, but not to see the building as a savior, Christ is. The building is not the evangelists, we are. The building is not the church, we, the congregation, are the church. And I've been warned by other pastors who have been excited for us that we'd be moving into this really nice building and you get to invite your friends, it'll be not to make the building into an idol. That was the that was the. That's what the Jewish people here who are accusing Stephen of blaspheming against Moses, that was their idolatry. 
We need to be very, very careful about that and keep the tent mindset. The building is not God's temple. We are told in the book of Corinthians, we are the temple of God. In the book of Ephesians, we are the temple, the living temple that God is putting together with living stones. We are the temple of God. And finally, it's not that we, oh, you can go forward a couple. I don't know why that did that. There we go. We go because God sends. There's another one. We must keep a tent mindset. And finally, it's not that we change the, we don't change the message because we're trying to reach people. In fact, there is no mission without the message. That's the big point of Stephen's whole speech. The big point of Stephen's whole speech is, I'm not changing anything. This is what God's word has said all along. It's you who have changed. It's you who have made this place an idol. And remember I told you at the beginning that there was people in every generation, every 10 years or so, or that come and say, we have to change the message in order to reach different people. And I told you that they had something in common. And we have to change the message or Christianity will die. And, and here, do you know what they have in common? What each of those movements have in common today are empty churches. There, there was recently, just in December, a, a major study that was just done by Dr. David Haskell of Welford Laurier University. And he published the largest comprehensive study on Canada's and the United States mainline churches and why they were dying. And, and what he found, what he found actually shocked a number of people, particularly those who have been saying for generations, oh, in order to reach new generations, we have to, we have to adapt and change the message. What he found actually was that message matters. And here's a, here's a piece that he wrote for the Toronto Star. I'll just quote some of it. He said, since the 1960s, Canada's mainline Protestant denominations made up of the Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, United Churches have lost anywhere between 40 and 60 percent of their membership. You guys know, uh, what was that, Churchill United that we were in? That was a huge church. Huge church. At one point, their Sunday school had 300 children in it. Right, we got to be at that church before they tore it down and made it into condos. Uh, I think when we were renting it, they had less, well, how many did they have? They had like less than 30 people, 30, 40 people worshiping there in a, in a church building that once housed 300 children. Wesley United, the church that we bought, same thing. So, so his article, since the 1960s, Canada's mainline Protestant denominations, Anglican, Lutheran, Presbyterian, United Churches, have lost anywhere between 40 and 60% of their membership, some way, way more. Some research colleagues and I wanted to find out why. We had read the previous academic studies and there was no consensus. Many of the popular texts on the subject, written primarily by theologians in the mainline traditions, suggested liberal theology, changing the message, was the key to growth. Liberal theology caused clergy and lay people to practice a metaphorical interpretation of the Bible and to temper their belief in supernatural phenomenon in order to make their religious message more palatable for modern audiences, just what I was saying. As a researcher, it's not often that you make a discovery that flies in the face of conventional wisdom. But when we finished assessing our data, that's what happened. We found that it is conservative theology that holds to the orthodox understanding of Christianity as it's been passed down through the ages with its emphasis on factual truth of Scripture and God's activity in the world. It is that which fuels church growth. Liberal theology leads to 
decline. We found, without exception, the clergy and congregants of the growing mainline Protestant churches that held more firmly to traditional Christian belief, such as the belief that Jesus rose physically from the grave and that God answers prayers, we found that they were the growing churches. The clergy of growing churches, the clergy of growing churches were the most theologically conservative and the declining church clergy the least. When we use statistical analysis to determine which factors are influencing growth, conservative Protestant theology was a significant predictor. He goes on to talk about at the heart of Christianity lies a conviction. A conviction that Jesus rose from the dead. A conviction that God is and he is the rewarder of those who seek him. A conviction that the Holy Spirit is at work in this world. The, the conviction that the Bible is the authoritative word of God revealed to us so that we might know what he has done for us in Christ and that we might know how to live and how to please him. And it is that which, cause, which, which moves churches out into mission. As we saw today, God is always moving. God is always sending. God is desiring the nations to know him through the Redeemer, ruler that he has sent. And so we don't change that message in order to try to reach people. Because if we do, we have nothing to reach them with. And so that's what Stephen has been charged with. He's been charged with changing the message. And Stephen's defense was, no, 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 I haven't changed at all. The word of God has always been living and active. The word of God has always been pushing people, his people, out into the nations. The the word of God has always been promising a redeemer, liberator, uh, ruler who will come and be rejected by his people. But Jesus Christ has come, and now he's sending us outside of the walls. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for getting us through this morning. Father, I I pray for us. It's a hard message. I know, I understand it was not only a distracting environment today, but it's a complex message, Father, for us as a church who's going to be moving very quickly and for us as a people who need to be seeing you, God, as the God who moves among the nations and are trying to follow you. I pray, God, for young people here today. I pray that they might have greater confidence in your word And I pray that they'd have great confidence in your spirit's ability to lead them and in your providential rule and care over their lives, that you make no mistakes in the places that you have led them to. Lord, I I pray that we as a church might continue to uh, view and to see the way that you're moving us as a church, particularly as we, we literally move, to see that it is your hand that is going before us. And to see, God, that you have given us a new mission field in front of us. And I pray, God, that we, we, we are protected against the idolatry of place. Help us, Lord Jesus, that we don't put our confidence in buildings and in places. But I pray, God, that you teach us to be people who are going outside of the walls. Father, we give you thanks and praise in your name. Amen.